Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hello, this is Daphne, and I will be reading the Cape Cod Times for you today for Thursday, October the 19th, 2023. We start with the weather. Today, partly sunny and delightful, high of 65. Tonight, partly cloudy, low of 55. Friday, mostly cloudy, a little rain in the afternoon, high of 67, low of 59. Saturday, rain, high of 65, low of 52. Sunday, mostly cloudy, a little rain, breezy, high of 60, low of 48. And Monday, cloud and sunshine, high of 55, low of 42. And the amount of daylight we get today, the sun rose at 6.57 and it will set at 5.54, which works out to 10 hours and 57 minutes of daylight. And for the lottery, the numbers game drawn yesterday, the midday drawing, 7708. Again, for the numbers game drawn Wednesday, Midday drawing, 7708. The evening drawing, 8300. Again, the evening drawing for the numbers game drawn yesterday, Wednesday, October 18th. The numbers are 8300. For mass cash, the drawing also was yesterday. The numbers are 11424. 27 and 33. Again for mass cash, 1, 14, 24, 27, 33. For Powerball, drawn yesterday, October 18th, the numbers are 1, 4, 13, 35, 58, with the Powerball of 24. Again, for Powerball, drawn yesterday, the numbers are 1, 4, 13, 35, 58, and the Powerball is 24. For Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, October 17th, the numbers are 5, 6, 29, 32, 61, with the Mega Ball of 20. Again, Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, the numbers are 5, 6, 29, 32, 61, with the Mega Ball of 20. For the Mega Bucks Doubler, drawn yesterday, the numbers are 7, 8, 19, 37, 40, 43, and the Doubler is 5. Again, for the Mega Bucks Doubler, drawn yesterday, Wednesday, the numbers are 7, 8, 19, 37, 40, 43, with the mega ball, or excuse me, the doubler of five. For Lucky for Life, drawn yesterday, Wednesday, the numbers are 14, 24, 28, 39, 47, and 17. 17 being the lucky ball. Again, for Lucky for Life, 
drawn yesterday, Wednesday, October 18th. The numbers are 14, 24, 28, 39, and 47. And the lucky ball is 17. And now for the news. From the front page of the Cape Cod Times, the title of this article is COVID-19 Booster Shots Available on Cape Cod. And this is reported by Rashik Tabusum Mujib for the Cape Cod Times. The Center for Disease Control's latest U.S. COVID-19 data posted on October 12th shows that across the state of Massachusetts from October 1 to 7, there were 2,506 confirmed cases of COVID-19. There were 18 confirmed COVID-19 deaths throughout that week in Massachusetts. According to the CDC, the community risk level in Barnstable, Dukes, and Nantucket counties is still low. The, the risk level helps convey how much COVID-19 is affecting a community using data on hospitalizations and cases. According to data through October 7, that week had more than 300 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Barnstable County, the most recent period for which data was available. The highest concentration of new cases are in the Mid-Cape and Upper Cape area, while Outer Cape has a low number of cases. Quote, we're not seeing an increase at this time. In fact, we are seeing less cases than we did a few weeks ago said Dr. Andrew Jorgensen, Chief Medical Officer of Outer Cape Health Services. On the other hand, the Mid-Cape has a different situation. Quote, there has been an uptick in COVID-positive admissions, though typically the positive COVID finding has been secondary to the primary reason for admission, said Lori Jewett, Chief Operating Officer of Cape Cod Healthcare. Cape Cod Healthcare has had 117 admissions over the last two weeks that have tested positive for COVID-19 upon admission. It's suggested that Cape Codders take advantage of available booster shots as soon as possible, as well as seasonal flu shots, according to Wendy Judd, a public health nurse at the Barnstable County Health Department. The flu shots are equally important at this time, and everyone should get these vaccinations done as soon as they can, said Judd. The through though excuse me. Though the booster is not an exact match for the new variant called EG5, Pfizer, Moderna, and Novavax are all developing versions aimed at the Omicron offshoot. XBB 1.5, a close relative. In August, Moderna announced that early clinical trials were promising. Quote, the current booster shots are effective against the new variant, said Judd. According to Karen Lewis, owner of Whole Health Pharmacy, most of the booster shots arrived on Cape in the last week of September. Quote, since the large-scale vaccine drive is no longer funded by the government, it becomes difficult to understand how much we need to order at the time, said Lewis. At the time, all vaccines offered by the whole health services were Moderna. Quote, we have enough vaccines in stock and we supply them through our pharmacies and other organizations we collaborate with, said Lewis. 
Barnstable County Department of Health and Environment is offering vaccine drives by appointment only on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Outer Cape Health Services is also offering both Pfizer and Moderna in all three of their clinics at Harwich, Wellfleet, and Provincetown. The new booster is available at both Cape Cod and Falmouth Hospitals, which may be scheduled online or through my chart. While CVS pharmacies across the Cape are offering only Moderna vaccines, Walgreens is offering both Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. To schedule an appointments and check availability in the local area, visit https colon slash slash www.vaccines.gov slash. And the top-level article for the Cape Cod Times front page for Mashpee murder trial, Lawyer says Perry didn't mean to kill his father, reported by Walker Armstrong for the Cape Cod Times. The lawyer for a Mashpee man charged with killing his father in 2017 and burying his body near an off-Cape Cranberry Bog told a Barnstable Superior Court jury Wednesday that the slaying was unintentional. In his opening statement, attorney Eduardo Masferrer said to the jury that Eli Perry killed Raymond Perry during an argument about Raymond Perry's home, where Eli was living in a small dwelling on the property with his then-girlfriend, Paige Malone. Wednesday was the first day of Perry's trial. Quote, Ultimately, Eli Perry took actions that resulted in his father's death, Masferrer said. But the evidence in this case will show you that he did not commit first-degree murder, that he did not intend to kill his father. Perry, 43, sat still in court while 11 indictments were read before the jury, with charges ranging from intentional murder, assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, to improper disposal of a body. Cape and Island's Assistant District Attorney Michael Giordano told the jury that on the night of Raymond Perry's death, Malone recalled hearing Eli Perry say something along the lines of, Tonight's the night. Later, he said, Eli entered the house and killed his father. Quote, Over the next few weeks, the Commonwealth expects to present evidence to you to show beyond a reasonable doubt that Eli Perry sliced his 64-year-old father's throat at 37 Riverside Road and transported him to that bog where he buried him, Giordano said. Raymond Perry was reported missing on December 1, 2017, Giardino said but friends and family reportedly had not been in touch with him since November 26th. Several days later, on December 18th, investigators found Raymond Perry buried under a mulch pile near a cranberry bog at Old Forge Farm in Plymouth. His hands and feet were bound with zip ties, and he was covered with a rug that authorities determined came from his home in Mashpee. The cause of death was said to be a combination of three incisions to the neck and blunt force trauma to the head. Giardino said Malone, who was near the scene at the time, would testify she heard Eli Perry say, I want you to die slowly. Malone is set to testify 
against Eli Perry under a cooperation agreement, Giardino said. After disposing of Raymond Perro's body, Giardino said Eli Perry and Malone returned to the father's house and attempted to hide the evidence by painting the walls and laying new flooring. Masfero said Eli Perry was wrapped in his addiction and was becoming increasingly more erratic in the days leading up to killing his father, but maintained Eli Perry had no desire to kill him. Quote, you can imagine, no one is more remorseful about this than Mr. Perry. It was his father, Masfero said. Quote, the issues and the facts of this case is whether the government can prove to you, beyond a reasonable doubt, Eli's intent on November 26, 2017, close quote. Another story from the front page of the Cape Cod Times, Park City Wind Plan to Bring Cables Ashore Okayed, reported by Heather McCarran, Cape Cod Times. Avon Grid Renewables' proposal to bring power cables <clears throat> from its Park City Wind Project ashore at Craigville Beach and run them under the Centerville River was approved by the Barnstable Conservation Commission, but with a list of conditions that include obtaining a power purchase contract. The board voted unanimously to permit the installation of two 275-kV submarine electric transmission cables in Nantucket Sound and an onshore duct bank system at Craigville Beach and two Short Beach Road, where the cables will be passed under the river. Members again acknowledge the numerous concerns residents have raised with the board, including questions about the project's financial viability, whether electromagnetic fields may harm human health and marine life, and how the project could affect the environment further inland at power substations. The board pointed out its decision is based on what's in their purview to act on. Quote, I just want to emphasize that many of the public's concerns are outside our conservation jurisdictions, said Chairman Tom Lee during the board's October 10th meeting, where they approved the permit with an order of conditions. But, he said, quote, the applicants need to secure all the permits and approvals, including the Energy Siting Board and the Town of Barnstable, before any construction can start, close quote. Power purchase plans are part of the project's review by state energy facility siting boards. Avangrid recently announced termination of its previously negotiated power purchase contract with the state of Connecticut, following a failed attempt to renegotiate its terms for its 804-megawatt Park City wind project. In March, the company similarly pulled out of its contract in Massachusetts, for its 1,200-megawatt Commonwealth Wind Project in favor of taking its chances with seeking a new agreement under better terms in the state's fourth wind procurement round now underway. Power purchase agreements are contracts between renewable energy producers like Avangrid and buyers of the energy that's produced. According to Avangrid, its projects have been troubled by supply chain problems, expenses tied to the war in Ukraine, inflation, and rising interest rates that have all resulted in higher overall costs that were not offset by the previous agreements completed before the economic situation declined. 
The Conservation Commission isn't the only board requiring the company to secure a new contract before the projects can proceed. Earlier this month, the Barnstable Town Council paused further action related to the projects, voting unanimously not only to pull back their prior authorization for town manager Mark Ells to begin negotiating a host community agreement for Commonwealth Wind, but also to postpone officially signing off on certain easements for Park City Wind until the project's status is resolved. The Conservation Commission has been reviewing Avangrid's application to land cables at Craigville Beach for the last couple of months. A public hearing on the plan was closed on September 12th, and the board has since been working on its order of conditions. Avangrid is specifically planning to bring the Park City Wind electric transmission cables from its 804-megawatt offshore wind farm ashore at the west end of Craigville Beach by way of horizontal directional drilling, the same technique used to bring power cables from the Vineyard Wind Project ashore at Coval Bridge Beach. The company is looking to pass the power cables under the beach then under, under Centerville River at Two Short Beach Road, which was purchased in late June for $430,000, according to town assessing records. Plans call for conveying the cables under the river using microtunneling, a trenchless construction technique. After that, the cables would be routed underground about four miles to a proposed substation on Shoot Flying Hill Road, then nearly a mile to the existing Eversource substation on Oak Street in West Barnstable. From there, the project would connect with the ISO-NE electrical grid. Among the Conservation Commission's draft conditions approved last week are limitations on when the company can perform work. Horizontal direction or drilling can't be done between April the 1st and August 31st in order to avoid and minimize noise impacts to piping plovers, a threatened species during breeding season. Additionally, microtunneling can't be conducted between May 15th and October 1st, and the company must coordinate with the harbormaster to address any potential hazards to navigation on the river. The board is also requiring that the cables be tunneled at least 10 feet below the bottom of the river to minimize any electromagnetic fields, or EMFs, the cables may produce. The commission is also requiring the company to maintain regular monitoring for excessive EMF levels at specific locations, including on the beach and entry and exit points at the river for three years after the cables are energized. Monitoring reports are expected at least once per quarter during the three years, with readings taken every 250 feet below, between the mean low water line and along the beach, as well as at shafts at Two Beach Road on one side of the river and on Craigville Beach Road on the other side, and two locations in the center of the river. Readings must also be taken both at the water's surface and at ground level. While several commissioners pointed out that there is no data definitely suggesting harm from buried power cables, they are requiring the monitoring as an extra precaution. 
Recognizing that science is still being done on the issue, the board members agreed they will request Avangrid to analyze their readings based on industry standards or guidelines at the time of the monitoring. Quote, I think it's good to have a handle of the, on that for sure, said Commissioner George Gilmore during the October 10 discussion. Board Vice Chairwoman Louise Foster agreed. Quote, I think it's important, she said. I don't feel uncomfortable about the EMF levels and effects and levels that are going to be present during this project, but I do think the public has certainly expressed concern about it and we ought to respond to it. Close quote. She suggested monitoring should be done for five to ten years, with a chance for the board to review whether it should be continued after that time. But the board stuck with the three-year period. Other conditions call for pre-construction site meetings, written construction protocols, compliance with state natural heritage guidelines, no disturbance of the environment, including cutting veg vegetation, beyond the work limit, minimal release of clay solids, and close monitoring of all drilling, among other things. The permit will be valid for three years. And our last story for the front page is entitled, $4.12 billion housing bill aims to add 40,000 new homes, reported by Chris Lezinski for the State House News Service. Chelsea, framing her new legislation as historic and urgent, Governor Maura, Maura Healey detailed her wide-ranging housing bill on Wednesday morning and expressed hope that its passage will provide a jolt for the 2024 construction season. Quote, we got to get after it, Healey said at a press conference in Chelsea, saying that the residents across the state are feeling the pressure of a squeezed housing market marked by low inventory and high costs. Quote, today is about meeting the moment. It's about meeting the moment and the needs of residents across the state. We've heard you, we listened to you, and today we're taking action. And in the days ahead, we're going to need collective action and teamwork to get this done, the governor said. Healy, who has marked her governorship so far with an emphasis on competing with other states, said the housing bill is necessary to keep residents from leaving Massachusetts. The bond bill would invest $4.12 billion into spurring the production of new units, upgrading aging and neglected public housing, converting state land into housing-ready plots, and tackling major housing policy changes, including offering a green light to communities that want to impose a tax on high-price re high real estate transactions to steer new re revenue into affordable housing development. Housing and Livable Communities Secretary Ed Augustus called the bill, quote, the most significant housing legislation filed in Massachusetts since 40B, 50 years ago, close quote. The Chapter 40B statute enables housing developers to circumvent local zoning regulations in communities that do not meet certain affordable housing quotas and is still controversial in many towns and cities today. The law has not been a success on Cape Cod. 
The policy blueprint comes more than nine months into the governor's term. Following a campaign where she's promised to address the state's growing housing crisis, and it will land in a legislature where senators and representatives have long resisted production-minding changes that conflict with varying local zoning rules in place across the state's 351 cities and towns. Combined with housing-related tax credits that just became law through a new tax relief measure, Healy's office estimated the proposals together could lead to the creation of more than 40,000 new housing units, chipping away at a shortage that has previously been estimated at roughly 200,000. Though Shealy did not attach a specific deadline for the legislation, lawmakers who will vet her plan are also under pressure to address housing affordability. And she reminded the audience that construction season in Massachusetts starts in the spring and that she hoped to make the most of new development opportunities. Quote, Spring's coming. Construction starts are coming or not, depending on our ability to work together. So let's go. Let's get after it, the governor said. Haley's proposal would allow governing boards in cities and towns to impose a new tax on high-priced real estate transactions, with proceeds being used for affordable housing and features an array of other tax code and policy changes designed to boost housing construction. It received an early vote of confidence Wednesday from a big business group, Associated Industries of Massachusetts, AIM, which has 3,400 member companies, declared its support for the bill only minutes after the legislation was announced. Quote, The development of reasonably priced housing across the Commonwealth will ensure that the workers who represent the economic future of Massachusetts can live here, raise families here, and become part of their communities, said AIM President Brooke Thompson. Quote, virtually every employer in Massachusetts has at one hand heard a valued employee say, quote, I love working for this company, but my family can't afford a house here, close quote. AIM looks forward to working with the Healy-Driscoll administration and the legislature to ensure that those conversations become a thing of the past. The conservative Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance protested the borrowing called for in the bill, as well as the proposed tax on home sales and the addition of, quote, more government bureaucracies. Quote, if Governor Haley wants to make housing more affordable, she needs to call on President Biden to lower interest rates. She needs to provide a way to lower property taxes. She needs to reverse the arbitrary green mandates, which limit consumer choice and penalizes affordable energy options, said Alliance spokesman Paul Craney. The governor is not dealing with the underlying issue of the cost of living and doing business in Massachusetts. Under the proposed local option, any city, town, or regional affordable housing commission can adopt a real estate transfer fee between uh, 0.5% and 2% on the portions of a sale above a certain amount with a vote of their local legislative body. The threshold would be either $1 million or the median single-family home sales price for the county, whichever is greater. 
the seller of the property would owe the tax and the proceeds would be deployed toward affordable housing development. Administration officials said because the money is earmarked specifically for housing, they do not believe the additional fee would hamstring new production. Heli's office estimated the fee, if adopted, would affect, quote, fewer than 14% of all residential sales, close quote. Greg Vasile, CEO of the Greater Boston Real Estate Board, said his group has, quote, deep concerns about the inclusion of sales tax on real estate, close quote, but otherwise applauded the administration's bold action to address the state's crippling housing crisis through more housing development. As for the transfer tax, which supporters say would not be applied to most home sales, Vasile said, quote, it's an unstable source of revenue that would cause more harm than good at a time when people and businesses are leaving the state because it is just too expensive, close quote. We've about reached the middle of our broadcast, and so it is time for obituaries. There are four today. We begin with Alice Giuliano, situate. Alice Jane Long Giuliano, 88, of Situate, Massachusetts, died peacefully on October 15, 2023. Alice was preceded in death by her parents, Alice Fallon Long and Edward R. Long, her husband, Donald A. Giuliano, and sons, Charles W. and Donald G. Giuliano. She is survived by her children, Jane M. Giuliano, Edward J. Giuliano and wife, Marguerite Ferreira, and Michael S. Giuliano and wife, Elizabeth Moore, daughter-in-law, Josie Ballinger Giuliano, and eight adored grandchildren, Sam, Maddie, Rita, David, Michael, Nicole, Lucy, and Nancy. Alice was a graduate of St. Patrick's High School in Brockton and Loyola Marymount University in California. Alice and Don brought up their family in Brockton, where they made lifelong friends. She enjoyed many summers at Homerock and West Dennis, as well as winters in Vermont. In in addition to raising a family, Alice had a long-standing career as a realtor. She was an avid tennis player and donated her time to various organizations, including Catholic Charities and many others. Her most treasured times were spent with her family, whether it was vacationing or a weekend on the Cape. Funeral Mass will be held at St. Christine's Parish, 1295 Main Street, Marshfield, Mash, on Thursday, October 19th at 10.30 a.m. That would be today and uh, very soon. Fond memories and expressions of sympathy may be shared at www.richardsongaffeyfuneralhome.com for the Giuliani family. And Richardson Gaffey Funeral Home is all one word. In lieu of flowers, expressions of sympathy in her memory may be donated to Shriners Hospital for Children, shrinerschildren.org. Our next obituary is for Kevin Lee Butler. 
Kevin Lee Butler of Hyannis died in his sleep at home on October 13, 2023. Born June 26, 1970 in in Louisville, Kentucky, to Van and Liz Butler, he grew up in Massachusetts and graduated from Oliver Ames High School in Easton. He married Melissa Buechler in 1994. Their two daughters, Megan and Vanessa, were born in Sandwich. The, cap- the couple later divorced. Coven- Coven- Kevin's career reflected his love for people and his nurturing spirit. A fantastic chef, he worked in the restaurant industry and owned the Castaway ca- Cafe in Falmouth. While living in Seminole, Florida, he ran a business as a fishing guide. He returned to the Cape and became a licensed practical nurse after graduating from Upper Cape Tech, Upper Cape Cod Tech in 2005. He worked in numerous nursing facilities on the Cape and did home visits for many patients. While continuing to work as an LPM, he bought a hot dog truck and opened KC Dogs a few months ago. His creativity as a chef and his love of connecting with his customers were on full display. Kevin married Celia Caselli October the 9th, 2018. The two found true happiness together and had many plans for their future. Kevin was many things to all of us. He was an amazing husband, father, son, friend, and nurse. He was the kind of guy who made friends wherever he went. If you knew him, you probably knew a few things. He had the biggest heart. He could make anyone laugh with his incredible sense of humor. He gave the best hugs, and he was absolutely obsessed with Jimmy Buffett. But most of all, he had a gift of making everyone around him feel so unbelievably loved. Survivors include his parents, wife Celie, daughters Megan and husband Brandon Weston, and Vanessa Butler, Celie's children Fozzie Elsa Howry and Mayara Casali, sister Dawn Butler, niece Lindsay Butler, and stepmom Mary Butler. A memorial gathering will be held Sunday, October 22nd from 2 to 4 p.m. at Chapman Funeral and Cremations, 3778 Falmouth Road, Marston Mills, Massachusetts. For online guestbook and directions, visit www.chapmanfuneral.com. Our next obituary is for Christopher John Elmer. Mashpee. Our dear Christopher John Elmer sadly passed away on September 21, 2023, at the age of 42. He was a wonderful son and big brother who was always there when we needed him. He also had many friends and was well-loved where he worked, at the Royal Magansett Nursing Home in Falmouth, Massachusetts. Chris will be remembered as skateboarding and walking all over Cape Cod. He was the Boston Bruins' number one fan, and he had a passion for detailing cars. Chris took pride in keeping his car clean. He would routinely wash and wax his car. And every time when he would finish detailing, he would say, Shiny, shiny, ha, ha, ha. We will miss him dearly and know that his spirit will be watching over us. His family will be having a memorial at the Dwayne Beal and Ames Funeral Home, 160 West Main Street, Hyannis, Mass., 
on Saturday, October 12th, 2023, from 12 to 3 p.m. To share a memory or leave a condolence, please visit www.duanebealeameshyannis.com. Duane Beal Ames Hyannis is all one word. Our final obituary today is for Michael Aldhurst. June 28, 1982 to September 28, 2023, Michael J. Aldhurst, 41, of East Sandwich, passed away. Our hearts are heavy. We are saddened by the loss of our beloved son and brother. Michael loved his music, disc golf, gardening, and spending time with family and friends, and also his best buddy, Scrubs. Mike was a kind and gentle soul and will be missed by many. He leaves his parents, Trevor and Regina Aldhurst, his brother, Peter, his adored cat, Scrubs, and many loving friends and relatives far and wide. Relative and friends are invited to attend a celebration of life at 3 p.m. on Saturday, October 21st, 2023, at the Nickerson-Born Funeral Home, 154 Route 6A in Sandwich, Mass. A visitation will be held prior to the service from 1 to 3 p.m. Burial is private. In lieu of flowers, donations to his memory can be made to the MSPCA Cape Cod, 1577 Falmouth Road, Centerville, Mass, 02632. And continuing with the news, this article is entitled Ferry Service from New Bedford Now Year-Round, reported by Catherine Gallerani for the Standard Times. The sea air may be a bit chilly for travelers boarding the Sea Streak for the high-speed ferry ride from New Bedford to Vineyard Haven and back, but it's now possible to visit the island year-round. The Sea Streak also has a special schedule for visitors to enjoy select holidays and special events in Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket this fall and winter. Early risers may also want to board the Sea Streak at 6 a.m. along with commuters hoping to get to work on Martha's Vineyard on time. The Martha's Vineyard Chamber of Commerce had a role in making this happen. According to James Barker, Sea Streak's Vice President of Sales and Marketing, the Chamber contacted the ferry service to ask if they would have interest in extending the season with the goal of accommodating workers in the building trades who need to get to Martha's Vineyard on a daily basis. The standard season would usually run from mid-April through mid-October, but this year we've decided to extend the season, run year-round, and really we built the schedule with the Martha's Vineyard Island commuter in mind, he said. They are offering two round trips weekdays, departing New Bedford at 6 a.m. to arrive in Vineyard Haven at 6.55 a.m., and leaving New Bedford at 3.15 p.m. to arrive on the island at 4.10 p.m., Monday through Friday. The first trip from Vineyard Haven to New Bedford leaves the dock at 7.30 p.m., sorry, 7.30 a.m., to arrive in New Bedford at 8.25 a.m., and at 4.40 p.m. it leaves New Be- Vineyard Haven to return to New Bedford at 5.35 p.m., Monday through Friday, to accommodate the workers. Weekend round trips. 
With the leisure traveler in mind, they are also offering two round trips on weekends, leaving New Bedford at 9.30 a.m. to arrive in Vineyard Haven at 10.25 a.m., and leaving New Bedford at 3.15 p.m., leaving New Bedford at 3.15 p.m. to arrive in Vineyard Haven at 4.10 p.m. The ferry will leave Vineyard Haven weekends, Vineyard Haven weekends at 11 a.m. to arrive in New Bedford at 11.55 a.m. and leave the dock at 4.40 p.m. to arrive in New Bedford at 5.35 p.m. Quote, We've committed to running the service in this way for the off-season, and if it goes well and there's a lot of demand for it, we could certainly apply to add more service, Barker said. Quote, that's something we would like to do, and that's certainly on the table for next season. Close quote. He said there's also a possibility that Sea Streak will begin to offer off-season ferry service to Nantucket next season. He said they will evaluate the new Martha's Vineyard schedule and make a decision. Visitors can take the ferry to both Vineyard, Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket for Thanksgiving weekend, Christmas weekend, and New Year's weekend, and to the annual Nantucket Christmas Stroll the first weekend in December. For the month of October, there is no charge for dockside parking at State Pier in New Bedford for Sea Street passengers, and parking will be discounted in November at $10 a day. They are also offering monthly parking at $100 a month dockside and $70 a month for the off-site parking lot within walking distance of the terminal. Quote, parking is easy and affordable out of our New Bedford location, Barker said. More Cape and Island news. This article is entitled, Born Boards Support Repeal of Recreational Marijuana Ban reported by Paul Gately, special to the Cape Cod Times. Buzzards Bay. It is never easy when born voters are asked to decide cannabis issues. This will not change at the November 6th special town meeting if the often confusing pot discussions by the Planning and Select Board to date, as well as the Finance Committee, are any indication. The Finance Committee on Monday night voted 4-3 to with one abstention, to favorably recommend a private petition warrant article that, if approved, would repeal the town's bylaws that bans retail adult recreational cannabis sales. The bylaw was upheld last year by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, primarily because the town does not have a zoning bylaw to that effect. The select board barely followed suit Tuesday night, voting 2-1, to one, to also recommend Article 15 with two abstentions. Members Melissa, Melissa Ferretti and Peter Meyer support the proposed cannabis sales repeal. Member Anne-Marie Cerunian does not. Board Chair Mary Jane Mastrangelo and Member Jared McDonald abstained. Ferretti and Meyer said adult marijuana usage is a private choice with no harm to the community if dispensaries are properly located. Sarunian is not so sure. She fears a marijuana climate emerging in Bourne, quote, and how it would affect the underage population out there. Sarunian also questions pot-based revenue flowing to town Quote, some people see dollars dancing in their heads and that it's going to generate so much revenue, quote, she said in an 
October 10th cannabis discussion, quote, and that's part of the reason why they want to repeal it, close quote. Cannabis revenue to the town would total $30,000 on each $1 million worth of retail sales, Mastrangelo said on October 10th. McDonald, on Tuesday night, said the, the board should not make a recommendation to voters about repealing the pot ban. Quote, this is a town vote, he said. Quote, to me, it's not necessarily a detriment or a benefit to the town. It's up to the voters. Mastrangelo agreed. Quote, I think the people will have their opinions, close quote, she said. Finance board James Sullivan, meanwhile, opposes the effort to clear the way for marijuana sales. He cites votes against cannabis sales in October 2018 and 2019, as well as the May 2023 town meeting with its tense and now infamous one-vote margin against pot sales. That tally was 249 to 248, with a single abstention following some often tense comments from voters and police keeping the speaking lines in check at the microphones. Quote, I think those ultimate votes deserve deference, Sullivan said on Monday. I know some things change, but I think the case for marijuana sales is probably less compelling now than it was then because of more alternatives in nearby towns for people who want to buy it. And financial advantages have probably diminished from what they were because of competition and changes in local host community fees, Sullivan said. So let's consider that. Member Wayne Sampson also opposes repealing the ban on recreational marijuana sales. Quote, the town has voted three times already, and I get a sense that some people think they're going to keep coming back to get whatever they want, he said. Quote, and I'm not sure that's the appropriate way, close quote. The select board on Tuesday, board on Tuesday night also considered other cannabis-related another cannabis-related article. This one was proposed by the planning board as a zoning bylaw amendment. It consigns marijuana shop locations to zoning mapped areas with none allowed on Main Street. Three establishments would be allowed in Bourne. Marijuana topics are comprised in three town meeting articles. Article 15, the pot ban repeal, is sponsored by former Planning Zone mem- board member Steve Strajny of Monument Beach. It needs a simple majority vote to prevail. Article 14, to prohibit all pot establishments, also by private petition, is sponsored by Doug Osterheld of Monument Beach. The measure involves zoning and would need a two-thirds majority vote to be approved. Article 13, the pot district's bylaws, proposed by the planning board, is also zoning-related and would need a two-thirds majority vote as well to prevail. The pot articles will be handled contingently, contingently once one is drawn through the town meeting lottery. When that happens, the planning board's bylaw will be discussed first. Whether it is defeated or not, both private petition articles will go to the floor afterward, Selectman decided, on October 10th. So, town officials and voters prepare for another cannabis town meeting and another pot ban debate. Voters have consistently, going back to 2005-2006, 
voted against marijuana establishments in town. Now they will vote again. And this article is entitled, War Raises Fears About Hostility in U.S. Mideast Wars Often Echo in Jewish and Muslim Areas, reported by Holly Raymer, Associated Press. A fatal stabbing in Illinois, a gun pointed at protesters in Pennsylvania, vandalism at synagogues and harassment of staff at a Palestinian restaurant are all are raising fears that the war between Israel and Hamas is sparking violence in the United States. The tensions follow a familial pattern, familiar pattern of crimes against Jewish and Muslim communities rising when conflict erupts in the Middle East and Americans have been taken hostage or killed. Quote, we have a two-pronged threat to American faith communities, said Brian Levin, founding director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino. While it's too soon to say with certainty whether anti-Muslim and anti-Jewish crimes have increased during the war, hate crimes overall increased in the U.S. last year. In its annual report released Monday, the FBI estimated that hate crimes increased by 7% to 11,634 cases in 2022 compared to the previous year. With 1,124 incidents, anti-Jewish attacks were the second most reported hate crime after anti-black cases. There were 158 reported incidents of anti-Muslim attacks and 92 reports of anti-Arab cases, according to the report. Civil rights organizations, however, believe that even before the Hamas attacks in Israel, crime data didn't reflect reality due to a lack of participation by local police departments and internalized fear among the Muslim population, said Robert McCaw, Director of Governmental Affairs for the Council on American-Islamic Relations. In 2021, the Other, Othering and Belonging Institute at the University of California, Berkeley, released a study in which 85% of those who were subjected to Islamophobia said they did not report it to the authorities. Quote, the true number remains to be seen, close quote, McCaw said. In one of the most troubling recent incidents, a landlord in Plainfield, Illinois, is accused of attacking a Palestinian-American tenant and her son with a knife on Saturday, purportedly because of their Muslim faith, stabbing the six-year-old boy to death and injuring his mother. The sheriff, prosecutors, and family all said the boy and his mother were targeted for being Muslim. More specifically, Prosecutors said the landlord was, quote, angry for what was going on in Jerusalem, close quote, and his wife told police her husband feared they would be attacked by people of Middle Eastern descent. In Pennsylvania, a man was charged with felony ethnic intimidation after police said he pointed a gun and yelled slurs at attendees of a pro-Palestinian rally near the Capitol on Friday. In Boston, the word Nazis was spray-painted across the sign for the Palestinian Cultural Center for Peace. Quote, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty in everything that's happening, close quote, said Abed Ayoub, National Executive Director for the Amer American Arab 
Anti-Discrimination Committee. He said the group has received more than 100 reports, including verbal harassment, threats, intimidation, and physical attacks. Quote, it's very reminiscent of the early days of post-911, where <clears throat> people didn't want to go outside. They didn't want to send their kids to school, he said. They're just worried about being in public and being approached, close quote. In Dearborn, Michigan, which has the nation's highest Muslim population per capita, community and faith leaders met outside the city's police department on Monday. The city has seen threats of violence in recent days, including from a man accused of asking on social media if anyone in Metro Detroit wanted to, quote, go to Dearborn and hunt Palestinians, close quote. Quote, we have to understand that these issues that are overseas are not just overseas. They are very much also issues here, said Imran Salha, the imam of the Islamic Center of Detroit. Historically, anti-Jewish hate crimes have increased during violent Israeli-Palestinian conflicts, said Levin, a professor emeritus at California State. In March 1994, there was a spike in anti-Jewish hate crimes from 79 incidents to 147 a month after an American-Israeli extremist opened fire on Palestinian Muslims in a mosque, he said, citing FBI statistics. On October 2000, anti-Jewish hate crimes in the U.S. surged from 81 to 204 compared to the month before after a series of violent protests in Arab villages in northern Israel. Levin observed a similar trend in May 2021, particularly in cities with significant Jewish populations, such as New York and Los Angeles. In California last week, flyers spreading anti-Jewish rhetoric were left in neighborhoods and on vehicles in the city of Orange. And in Fresno, police said a man suspected of breaking windows and leaving an anti-Jewish note at a bakery also is a person of interest in the vandalism of a local synagogue. Julie Platt, chair of the Jewish Federations of North America, said synagogues and Jewish community centers around the center have been strengthening their security programs, but she does not want to see members of her community duck for cover. Quote, I think the whole point of this is to terrorize us psychologically, she said. As long as I hear of no credible threats, I believe we should live our Jewish lives. In New York, several Palestinian Americans interviewed Friday in a Brooklyn neighborhood with a large Arab population said the atmosphere has been tense in, tense in the last week. A Palestinian restaurant, Ayat, was forced to disconnect its phone after receiving nonstop threatening voicemails, said co-owner Abdul Elanani. The storefront features a mural of a crying Palestinian, and its menu includes calls to, quote, end the occupation. On Friday, a man entered the dining room shouting terrorist at the people behind the counter, Elanani said. Still, the hostile reception was overshadowed by the support he has received from his neighbors, many of whom are Jewish and share his views about minimizing civilian deaths. Quote, In New York, we all live together, we work together, we grow together, Elanani said. 
and we all want this violence to stop. That's all we have time for today. This is Daphne. I've been reading the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, October the 19th to you. I hope that you have a wonderful weekend.